are you doing today? I am so glad to be here. Of course, I'm a cancer survivor, so I'm just glad to be anywhere today, but I'm especially glad to be here. Uh, Scott said he, that you have me every year. I'm probably the oldest guest speaker you have, just guessing. And that's a tradition we need to keep up. So I have my calendar here with me, Scott, for next year. And I'll give you all my available dates. But I love this church. Thank you for partnering with World Help in Guatemala and Cuba and around the world. You guys are awesome. I'm here today on a mission. Over the pandemic, I had a lot of free time on my hands like many of you. And I decided I was going to write a book on the persecuted church. They asked me to be their advocate. They asked me to tell their stories. And so I just sat down and started writing their stories uh, from memory when I've met them and from my notes. And I put together this book entitled, If I Die, Risking Death to Live for Jesus. And I'm on a book tour. This is the 15th stop on my book tour of 40 stops. And um, all the proceeds from the book go to help the persecuted church, and today, especially the persecuted church in Ukraine. I don't take any royalties from the book. A world Help doesn't take any royalties from the book. Um, all the proceeds are going to the persecuted church. So this is a way you can help me help them. When I was uh, first starting on the, on the tour, I felt compelled not to charge for the book, but just to um, let anyone have a copy if they wanted to for whatever amount they wanted to leave. And some people uh, come up and put just a few dollars and some people put a few thousand. I, re I remember my son Josh said, Dad, don't charge people for your books. No one's going to pay you money to buy your book. <laughs> I said, well, son, that's not very nice. He said, no, trust me, Dad. He said, I saw your Y book on Amazon for a quarter. <laughs> and he said, and it was autographed. Do you know how embarrassing that is? <laughs> so please, you can have it for any amount except a quarter. Do not leave quarters. I, uh, I was questioning the first stop on the book tour whether I should uh, do this or not. It was, I was in a small church of 125 people that morning. And I said, boy, have I made a mistake. And the very first gift, a man came up and wrote a check and put it in the basket while I signed a book to give to him. And I noticed it was a check for $1,000. And ever since then, God has just done some incredible things. You know, God can work when we get out of the way. And uh, this, if you're like me, you're watching what goes on on television and now it's been a month, and it's depressing. 
It's, it's depressing. And you're probably sitting there saying, I wish I could help. I wish some way we could help. And some of the uh, organizations like Red Cross keep 50% of all gifts uh, just for their salaries. And you, you, you don't want to do that. So who can, who can I give to? And so we encourage you today. I just ask one favor. Will you give at that book table back there as if you were giving to your own family? Because you know what? You are. These are our brothers and sisters in Ukraine that are suffering. So I want to just read you one page from the book and tell you the story of how this book got its name. Someone said, hey, Vernon, that would be a good way to raise money for the book. They can either buy it or you could read it to them. Okay, which one do you want to do? Buy it? Read it? No. Let me just read you one page. And uh, this is how the book got its title. I met Ping several years ago on a trip to Vietnam. Her story of persecution is the kind that haunts you for days and weeks later, and in some respects, it still haunts me today. I'll never forget the look on her face as she recounted the abuse and torture she had endured for being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. This 34-year-old woman had once been a Buddhist and lived in a monastery. She had been sick for many years, and when Ping accepted Christ, she was immediately healed of her disease. She is now an evangelist and church planter. And when I met her, she had started six churches and had 47 more new churches developing. One day, Ping's husband was asked by a new convert to help him destroy his family's ancestral altar. An informant turned them in, and the police videotaped them. The two men were arrested, and Ping's husband was sent to prison for months. She was left alone with her young children. This young woman had been arrested six times by the secret police. She suffered continuous persecution. She was beaten numerous times, detained for weeks at a time, and fined the equivalent of $250, which is six months' salary. The police beat her on the head every day for two weeks. She almost died. When she survived, they decided to tie her hands together and throw her overboard from a boat in the river. Once again, she miraculously survived. The police then forced her to march up and down a mountain for days. She said that when she could no longer stand the beatings, she would pray and ask God for strength. One day... The police publicly humiliated her by tearing off her shirt and parading her through the streets. She stood in that public gathering, half naked, with her hands tied behind her back and said, I live for Jesus Christ. If I die, I die for Jesus Christ. And there's the title of this book, If I Die in honor of Ping, 
risking death to live for Jesus. Nowhere in the world right now, right this moment, is there more persecution than in Ukraine. TV, radio, social media bombard us with constant updates and gruesome images, but rarely does the media mention that religious freedom is also at risk in this war. Ukraine is fighting for its independence from Russia in the church as well as in the streets. And with Vladimir Putin's attack on a country that's nearly 80% Christian. Did you know that? 80% of the population in Ukraine professes Christianity. That's even more than our own country. The Ukrainians' persistent determination to fight back and to take a stand isn't only patriotic, it's a battle for their beliefs. And as the result of Putin's persecution is unfolding before our eyes, Putin may not be the Antichrist, but he is certainly an Antichrist, an anti-Jesus man of ruthless intent who will not stop at anything to reestablish the USSR. You've heard the statistics Right now, more than 4 million refugees have fled Ukraine, albeit the uh, Polish-Ukrainian border and in the Ukraine in just a few weeks. 2 million of them are children. 10 million homeless without displaced. And that's 25% of the population. We are watching a new iron curtain grinding into place. And in its wake are persecuted victims that have names. They have families. They have their own stories. And they've asked me to be their advocate and tell their stories. I received an email from one of our World Help board members right after the, the war began. She's a pediatrician and lives in Gainesville, Florida. And she said, Vernon, at this moment, my brother and his wife and their five kids are on the Ukrainian-Polish border trying to get across to Poland. They have been living in Ukraine for the past year and for the past 72 hours have been fleeing from their home in what feels like a harrowing movie. They are currently in a bus depot near the Polish border after walking 15 miles with thousands of other Ukrainians in zero-degree weather. At one point, my brother was separated from his family, but thankfully they have been reunited. They have a very strong faith and know that God is with them and goes before them. As soon as Russia invaded Ukraine, World Help, sent a team to meet with our partners. One of our partners is in Kiev. It's a seminary, and we've been partnering with them for over 12 years. And as soon as the war started, they get, took the whole basement about the size of this room 
and used it as a staging area for humanitarian aid, a food center. And they have pastors in their cars distributing food to those who are displaced. You know, the local church is God's hope for the world. And so we are working with our partners in the seminary, and we send our staff over there uh, to see what's going on. We have been on the ground, and I want you to hear from our staff and hear from our partner. Watch this with me. We just crossed the border from Ukraine back into Poland. It was quite a scene. There was a line about 10 kilometers long of cars. People have probably been waiting all night just across the border. Really difficult scene, mostly mothers, children, um, the elderly. It was quite an experience inside Ukraine. I mean, just the sheer amount of refugees that are fleeing the eastern part of the country, cities like Kiev and Kharkiv, um, headed to our partners, Refugee Center in Lviv. They're doing tremendous work providing hot meals for those people, accommodations for overnight, clothing, uh, most importantly, transportation to get to the border. We can't thank our donors enough for giving generously, but we're just getting started. There's a lot more work to do. Uh, there's still going to be probably a couple more million people that are going to try to escape Ukraine. 17 days of war. Ukraine is still standing. In 17 days, we learn so much about ourselves. From the very first day, I was asking you to pray for a miracle. But one thing that I can tell you right now, the miracle is being unfolded every single day as I'm talking. What I see our people doing and what I see our people going through, these pictures of Mariupol and other places that stand in front of your faces right now, they're all talking about the desperate evil that is in this world. But there's this other side of that. As a lot of people opened their hearts. We all became one nation. And I'm not talking only about Ukraine. The whole world became one nation. Polish people, European people, Americans, all of you became part of us. Because you shared our burden. You carried us on your hands. Just in these 17 days, more than 8,000 people were helped by UPTS family in Lviv, in Zakarpati, in different areas of Ukraine. Everyone was trying to do everything what they could do. Another thing that changed, we stopped being church for all the believers. We became church for the whole world. And the church that we became was not only about words, but actually about actions too. A lady that was traveling from Kharkiv for 30 hours could come and have a place to sleep. She could relax, have a warm meal. She could cry first time in several days. She could feel safety, warmth, peace, and all of that because people were opening their hearts to her. We're going through this, learning a lot about ourselves and ourselves as people. We're not only evil, but there's a lot of good in us. And I continue to ask you to pray for Ukraine, to pray for a miracle. And we will bring these moments 
of humane attitude, loving your neighbor into so many lives of people. And I hope that very, very soon we will celebrate when this war will be over and we will start rebuilding everything back to even better than what it was before. Thank you for your support. Thank you for being part of our nation, being part of our family. Can you imagine putting your little girl on the bus with your wife and waving goodbye? Our partners told us of a young woman who arrived in Poland with her seven-day-old baby. She had fled the shelling in Kharkiv, which meant she had given birth while on the run and had received no medical treatment. Our team and partners on the ground that you've just met immediately established a feeding center where they feed 3,500 people in one hour, their only meal for the day. A little boy who had reached safety was so hungry that when our volunteers handed him a croissant, he ate it while it was still wrapped in plastic. His mother said he had not eaten for two days. The persecution of Christians around the world is more severe today than it's ever been in our lifetime. And we have witnessed more martyrs in the 20th century due to communism than in the previous 19 centuries combined. Christians are brutalized in Nigeria and assassinated in Iran and beaten to death in China. They're harassed and abused and tortured or executed because of their faith in more than 60 countries worldwide. It's estimated by some that a Christian is killed approximately every five minutes for their faith. If that's true, that's 105,000 martyrs a year, and that means in the last 10 years, one million martyrs have died for their faith. And I say to us this morning, a million martyrs is more than enough. One of the men that the Apostle John discipled was Polycarp, an early church father in Greece. By the way, John the Beloved was the only follower of Jesus of the of the 12 apostles that did not die a cruel, agonizing death from persecution. And on February 23rd, A.D. 155, just like Jesus entering Jerusalem, Polycarp was led into the city of Smyrna, Greece, on a donkey. The Roman governor pleaded with Polycarp to recant his belief in Jesus Christ Polycarp responded with those words that are now famous when he said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp was taken to the center of the Colosseum 
where the bloodthirsty crowd chanted for death by beast, but the officials opted for fire. As the pyre was lit, Polycarp prayed, I bless you. Because you have thought me worthy of this day and this hour to be numbered among your martyrs in the cup of your Christ. Soon the flames engulfed him, but they did not consume him. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him, Polycarp was fireproof. The executioner stabbed Polycarp through the flames, and he bled out. But not before the 12th martyr of Smyrna had lived out John's exhortation, be faithful even to the point of death. Rarely a week goes by that we don't hear about a church being attacked or a missionary being held hostage, or Christians being murdered for their faith. I have seen their actual scars. I've heard the heartache and sorrow in their voices. I've seen the suffering in their eyes. It's an unforgettable picture that is etched on my heart and in my mind. And I hope that God never allows me to forget. We should be thanking God that we don't have to watch our loved ones, our husbands, our wives, our children suffer terrible pain and anguish and possible death just because of their faith. Someone suggested that when trying to make sense of persecution and martyrdom, four key reasons are given. One, persecution purifies the church. There are no nominal believers in the persecuted church. There are no Sunday morning Christians in the persecuted church. There are no casual Christians in the persecuted church. Number two, persecution unifies the church. There are no disputes over minor doctrinal issues in the persecuted church. They don't argue about which translation of the Bible to use. There are no Struggles for power in the persecuted church. Number three, persecution strengthens the church. Believers in the persecuted church are courageous and bold because every day they are compelled to take a stand for Jesus Christ. And number four, persecution grows the church. In 1950, when communism took over in China and missionaries were expelled, there were only one million Christians in the entire country. Today, even the government recognizes there, there are at least 44 million Christians in China, and some estimate, including me, that it could be as high as 130 million Christians in China, and the reason we do not know for sure is that so many of them are meeting secretly in house churches. So how should we as Christians respond to persecution? Do you find yourself watching those horrible images of Ukraine saying, I wish there was something I could do? 
until this year, persecution of believers was the most severe of any country in the world. For the past 20 years, North Korea has been ranked the most persecuted country in the world. Just this year, briefly, Afghanistan overtook them for the most persecuted country until a month ago. And when the war started against the 80% uh, percent population of Ukraine being Christians, Ukraine is now the most persecuted country of Christians in the world. But in North Korea, where I've been several times, in one instance when a group of church leaders did not reject Christ, police directed a bulldozer be driven over them, crushing them to death. Can you imagine? Government officials round up entire families up to three generations and throw them into labor camps. A believer can be sentenced up to 15 years for owning a Bible or singing a praise hymn or pray all of things we've done already this morning. But most Christians die within three years of being in the labor camps, so it's really a death sentence. It's estimated that there are 300,000 Christians in North Korea with possibly 70,000 being held in political labor camps. And I don't pretend to understand even a fraction of what any of these people are going through. But if I were in their shoes, I would want to know that someone still cares about me. I'm reminded of the profound words of Martin Niemöller, a prominent Lutheran pastor in Germany who spent time in Nazi concentration camps and was an outspoken critic of Adolf Hitler. He wrote these words. First, they came for the socialist, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. The time is long past for feeling shocked or even feeling sorry for our fellow Christians around the world. We can't, as children of God, stand idly by and do nothing. It's time to act. We must unify as the body of Christ to aid those who are suffering persecution because of their religious beliefs. We must speak up on their behalf to bring awareness to their situation. There is so much more to be done so many needs. They need to have training to plant churches. They need to have buildings in which to meet. They need Bibles. They need prayer. They need for us to follow their example. You say, what do you mean? The persecuted church does not understand our lifestyle. They do not understand our materialism, our selfishness, our prayerlessness. It's a mystery to them how they can have so very little 
and love God so very much. And they look at us and see that we have so very much and compared to them, love God so very little. We must pray for them. We must give generously to them. They're our family. My friend Luis Palau said before he died, how many more Christians will have to suffer and die before we realize it is our job to try to stop these atrocities? We are often so caught up with our own petty problems that we don't make time to think about the Christians who are bleeding and dying across the world. You know what my fear is? My fear is that we're going to get used to all those images on television and see them every day to where they don't bother us anymore. That's my fear. I've saved my text for this talk till the very end. I would like to read it to you. It's from 1 John 3, 17 and 18. And I'd like to read it from the message translation that are so timely for us today. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears. And you made it disappear. My dear children, let us not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. And in the words of the famous British abolitionist who helped end slavery in Great Britain years before it was ended here, William Wilberforce said these words that I think we can apply to our world today. He said, you can choose to look the other way but you can never again say you did not know. Thank you.